Content warning. The following program may contain descriptions of violence and or sexual assault that may be upsetting to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. The upper left corner of the United States is full of stunning scenery. Beautiful mountains, raging rivers, breathtaking valleys, and so much more. But the Pacific Northwest is also known for something more sinister. This beautiful land also seems to be a breeding ground for serial killers and others who commit heinous acts. I was born in the Pacific Northwest, and I've had a fascination with true crime since childhood. I'm here to tell you the true crime stories of the PNW. So grab your sweater and a cup of coffee. I'm your host, Emily, and this is The Upper Left Corner. believe that a brutal murderer like the Spokane serial killer can plea bargain to save his life. Who is there to plea bargain for my daughter Jennifer and all the other daughters and a son that were brutally murdered and left like garbage? I know the remorse and sorrow you feel is for yourself and not the countless women you so cruelly murdered. And serial killer Robert Gates thought the plea deal he made here kept the death penalty off the table for all his crimes. But he was dead wrong. The defendant shall be sentenced to death. The main question is why did he have... Why did she have to die? He had no right to take her life. And I hope you rot in hell. This week, I'll be telling you about serial killer Robert Lee Yates Jr. But first, let's get our PNW town profile. Spokane, Washington is getting a basic overview today because I'll be back, likely many times. It's located in eastern Washington along the Spokane River and 18 miles from the Idaho border. It's a 279-mile straight shot on I-90 from Seattle. It is known as the birthplace of Father's Day, which originated at the YMCA by Sonora Smart Dodd in 1910. She was raised by a single father of six who was a war veteran And after observing Mother's Day being celebrated at church, she suggested to celebrate the fathers on June 5th. But since it was fast approaching, the pastor helped her select the third Sunday in June. And although it took a few years, it did finally get nationally recognized. And Sonora continued her efforts for decades. Spokane is nicknamed the Lilac City, and there is even a lilac named after Spokane. The Census Bureau estimated in 2019 that the population of the city of Spokane was just over 222,000. And that's where I'm going to leave it for now. I'll be back soon, Spokane. 
And now on to our story. Robert Lee Yates Jr. was born on May 27, 1952, to parents Robert Yates Sr. and Anna Marie Yates. They were a middle-class family in Oak Harbor, Washington, and he was the only son of five children. Growing up, his family were members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and it is said he had a decent childhood with a loving family. He was described as a well-mannered child that enjoyed school and played football and baseball. He was close with his father, and together they enjoyed hiking and fishing. Although his childhood was overall idyllic, he did face some hardships. When he was six years old, it was discovered that an 11-year-old neighbor boy had been molesting him. And some also described his relationship with his mother as unusual and that she was overly controlling of him. During his teenage years, his parents confided to friends that his behavior was moody and violent on occasion, but classmates described him as an average Joe. He graduated from Oak Harbor High School in 1970 and went on to attend Skagit Valley College in Mount Vernon, Washington, where he earned an associate's degree. At the age of 20, he married a woman named Shirley and moved to Walla Walla to attend school. After 18 months of marriage, the couple separated and Yates quickly moved on with a woman named Linda Brewer, who he married in July of 1974. However, this was a problem as he was still legally married to Shirley. This marriage was ultimately annulled and the divorce from Shirley was finalized the following month. The couple stayed together, however, and Linda gave birth to the couple's first daughter that December. In 1975, Yates was hired by the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, where he worked for about three months before quitting. During his time in Walla Walla, in the summer of 1975, he committed his first two murders. 22-year-old Susan Savage was a recent graduate of WSU, and her friend, 21-year-old Patrick Oliver, who was an honor roll pre-med student, were enjoying a picnic at Mill Creek Park, a popular swimming hole, when they were both shot and killed by Yates, who was at the same location practicing his target shooting. He turned the gun on Patrick Oliver first, shooting him three times, and then on Susan Savage, shooting her twice. He buried them under a pile of brush where their bodies were discovered the following day. There were a lot of theories and suspects over the years, including a hired hitman, and even Interpol got involved at one point since Patrick had studied abroad in Europe just before his murder. The families of Patrick and Susan did not receive answers as to what happened to their loved ones until nearly 25 years later. After quitting his job at the state penitentiary, he had an incident when he began working for a company called Pantrol. He had a conflict with a coworker, and out of rage, he smeared his feces on the front door of the business, so he clearly had a rage issue by this point. In 1976, Robert and Linda had a second wedding ceremony in Oak Harbor, and this time, the marriage was legal. Three months later, his mother, Anna Marie, died of cancer. Then, in 1977, at the age of 25, he and Linda welcomed their second daughter, and he enlisted in the U.S. Army, serving as a pilot to fly civilian transport airplanes and helicopters. He was stationed in various countries, including Germany, Somalia, and Haiti, with a career that spanned into the 90s. Linda and the kids stayed behind, living in Oak Harbor during his service, 
and the couple grew apart but stayed together for the kids. They had a third daughter in 1981. While on break from the Army in July of 1988, Yates killed 23-year-old Stacy Hahn in Skagit County, just outside of Mount Vernon, Washington. The sex worker had suffered a single gunshot wound to the head. Her body was discovered five months later in December of 1988. For many years, Stacy was listed as a probable victim of the Green River Killer. The following year, he and Linda had their fourth child, a son, in 1989. Once his son was born, he reportedly had no interest in his daughters. He left the active duty Army in April of 1996, just a year and a half short of being eligible for his retirement benefits, but since the military was reducing its number, he received his full retirement. He moved the family to Spokane and went on to serve in the National Guard as a pilot. During this time, he had to wait for clearance to fly, which took almost a year, and during this time, he committed many murders while appearing to be a normal family man, attending church, and being involved with his children. He also purchased his dream car, a 77 white Chevy Corvette. But in April of 1996, his daughter found his address book, that listed many women whose names she did not recognize. She began calling the numbers, and all of the women denied knowing her father's name. She confronted her father, and he was angry, but told her that they were different people he had purchased car parts from. He also had a domestic incident with one of his teenage daughters where he reportedly slapped her out of anger. Around this time, his wife found receipts for a pay-by-the-hour motel and confronted him. The motel was called Al Spa Tub Motel, and just like the name states, each room had a jetted tub. This motel was known to be a convenient location for sex workers and their clients and was likely on a wife's list of places she hopes to never find her husband. Yates, however, had an explanation for his wife. He told her that he enjoyed using the tubs after a long day's work. Most of his National Guard work was on the weekends, so he still worked normal jobs during the week. He had picked up some hard labor jobs after leaving the Army, where he had to work long hours doing strenuous things. She had long accepted that her husband was likely having affairs by that point. There had been evidence but no solid proof before this, and she had continued to stay in the marriage. At this point, he began burning his receipts and credit card statements. Sometime in 1997, she found him cleaning blood out of the back of his car, and when she asked him about it, he stated that he had hit a dog and had loaded it in the car to take to the vet to try and help it, and again she believed him. They had separated multiple times throughout the years, including once when she found a hole in their apartment that Yates had drilled to see into the neighbor's bedroom. In the 80s, she left him because she stated she was no longer in love with him and moved to her hometown of Walla Walla, but returned to him after her daughters begged for them to get back together, and she said she decided it was best for the family if she just suffered through the marriage. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Every year, over 125,000 Americans die from overdose and suicide combined. That's not even talking about the other causes of death related to substance and mental health. Just those two. And these deaths are completely preventable. That is why Jay Schiffman, a public speaker and coach, has started the podcast Choose Your Struggle. 
Jay interviews people with lived experience on topics of mental health, substance misuse, and recovery to help end the stigma and normalize the difficult conversations through empathy and vulnerability. There are massive system changes that need to happen, but until we can have honest conversations around these topics, these lives will continue to be lost. This is why Jay started the Choose Your Struggle podcast. He tells his story as a guy in long-term recovery who survived two suicide attempts and an overdose. He's taking a second chance at life and making it meaningful by using this podcast as a platform. With over 100 five-star ratings, the Choose Your Struggle podcast is for everyone, from those struggling with substance or mental health issues to the people who love them. Check out the Choose Your Struggle podcast on your favorite podcast platform today. Your business deserves the same expertise as that of a Fortune 500 company. If you need a CIO-level service, why hire a full-time staff member at $250,000 a year when you can get this on-demand service for fractions of the cost? As your CIO on demand, we'll give you the steps you need to take so as to minimize interruption to your business and profitability and provide you and your business with training and education to prevent future attacks. To get an efficiency review for your business today, contact us at www.ee-services.com. And now back to the story. During these years, he was on an absolute killing spree. And I'm going to get into victims and dates here, but I'm going to give you his MO right now so I don't repeat myself over and over again. And I also feel it's important to acknowledge each of the victims he was convicted of killing without going into details of their murder while describing. So his victim profile was sex workers. Most were picked up off of Sprague Street in Spokane, and his method was typically multiple gunshots to the head, and the victims were found with multiple grocery bags over their head. Here are the confirmed victims in the order they were discovered. On August 26, 1997, Jennifer Ann Joseph's body was found by a farmer in the Mount Spokane foothills. She was the youngest victim of Yates at only 16 years old. She was a runaway from Tacoma and was last seen getting into a white Corvette. That same day, the body of Heather Marie Hernandez was discovered in a different field. She was a 20-year-old woman who was described as a drifter. On November 5, 1997, a man walking his dog discovered the body of Darla Sue Scott off of Hangman Valley Road in a shallow grave. Yates liked to dump bodies in this area due to its location near a sewage treatment plant, and he thought the smell might help keep the bodies hidden for longer. On December 7, 1997, Melinda Mercer's body was found in Tacoma. She was a 24-year-old who had struggled with heroin addiction, and her mother would later tell a court that in her last conversation with her daughter, she had said she wanted to come home, but she had told her she couldn't until she had sought help for herself. Which, what a heartbreaking way for things to end for a mother. The body of 36-year-old Sean L. Johnson was discovered on December 18, 1997, also off of Hangman Valley Road. And less than 10 days later, the bodies of Laurel Wason and Sean McClenahan were found on December 26, 1997, in a gravel pit off of Hangman Valley Road. Foreign vegetation, packing styrofoam, peanut shells, and broken chips of concrete were covering their bodies. On February 8, 1998, 41-year-old Sunny Oster's remains were found in a wooded area in western Spokane County with all of the hallmarks of a Yates murder. 
34-year-old Linda Mabin's body was discovered on April 1, 1998 in a shallow grave only 50 yards from where Wason and McClenahan were found. She was found covered in plant trimmings that did not appear to be growing on the property. On July 7, 1998, 47-year-old Michelle Lynn Durning was found in Spokane's East Central neighborhood under a hot tub cover. There were a few differences with this victim. Although she had been killed in the same manner, she had not been raped and her body had not been moved to a different location. She had also been seen a week prior to her body being discovered, whereas many of his other victims had been missing for weeks or months when they were found. On August 1, 1998, Christine Smith was solicited by Yates. However, he was unable to perform, so he took his money back and shot her in the head. Fortunately for Christine, the bullet grazed her head, and she was able to escape and run to St. Luke's Medical Center for help. She had thought she'd only been hit with an object or his fist, and they gave her three stitches. It wasn't until a car accident two years later that required an x-ray of her head that shrapnel was discovered lodged in her head that she realized she had been shot during that incident. On October 13, 1998, Connie LaFontaine was 35 years old when her body was discovered in Tacoma. Her father stated that she had dealt with the death of her two sons and a heroin addiction, adding that she was an independent girl that he was proud of. The investigation led authorities to look into people owning Corvettes living in eastern Washington, as that car had been described several times as possibly being involved in the murders. As they worked their way down the list, they called Yates in for questioning after finding he had owned a white Corvette, but had sold it in 1998. They were particularly interested in him since he had been pulled over twice in the Corvette, once while driving down East Sprague, an area where a good portion of the sex workers had gone missing, and a second time near one of the burial sites. He claimed that he knew nothing about the murders and that he had never solicited any woman. He sold the Corvette for $9,000 shortly thereafter. And on November 10, 1998, he was pulled over in his new car, a Honda Civic, with a woman in the passenger seat that was known to the officer as a sex worker. Yates explained that she was the daughter of a friend and he was just giving her a ride. Authorities asked for him to submit a DNA sample, but ultimately he declined stating he was just a family man and it was a little too much for them to ask him to do that. In 1999, he was brought in for questioning again, and he told the same story about the sex worker being a daughter of a friend. But when they brought her in for questioning, she said that was a story that Yates had concocted and he had solicited her that day. Not having enough evidence, they let him go. And the following year, in 2000, and the following year, in 2000, Investigators tracked down the new owner of the white Corvette and asked if they could collect fibers from the car, which she agreed to. The fibers ultimately matched the ones retrieved from Jennifer Joseph. They also discovered dried blood on the passenger side. Investigators didn't have Jennifer's blood to compare the DNA to. However, they were able to take blood samples from both of her parents and the DNA matched and they also found a button under the seat that matched the blouse that Jennifer had been wearing. They finally had enough to arrest Robert Lee Yates Jr. On the morning of April 18, 2000, 
Police officers pulled a car over heading north on Market Street in Spokane and placed Yates under arrest for the murder of Jennifer Joseph. His home was searched, and at first they refused to say if they had connected Yates as the serial killer. However, after a few days, the sheriff said he was the prime suspect in at least eight other murders. During the investigation, Spokane officials stated they were not planning to seek the death penalty. They were working on a plea deal with Yates, and one of the conditions was that he reveal, reveal where the body of a missing woman was. He was suspected of murdering 43-year-old Melody Murphin, who was last seen on May 20, 1998. On Monday, October 16th, the deal was agreed upon, and Yates sketched out a map of the yard of his home on a legal pad. After digging for about two hours, detectives found Melody Murphin's body in a flower bed near the Yates' bedroom window. Robert Lee Yates Jr. was convicted of 13 counts of first-degree murder and one account of attempted murder in Spokane County Superior Court. The judge sentenced him to 408 years in prison, which ultimately is a life sentence. Yates avoided the death penalty by confessing to the Spokane County murders in exchange for a life sentence. However, in 2001, Pierce County prosecutors charged Yates with the murders of two additional women, and they sought the death penalty for the murders of Melinda Mercer and Connie LaFontaine. And in October 2002, he was convicted and sentenced to death by lethal injection. Yates and his lawyers argued that the plea deal he made with the Spokane prosecutors was all-encompassing, which means the plea deal was covering all of the murders he may have committed and also argued that the life sentence for 13 murders in Spokane and a death sentence for two murders in Tacoma is disproportionate. The Washington State Supreme Court rejected this argument in 2007, and he moved on to the next round of appeals. The following year, a judge signed Yates' death warrant and was given an execution date of September 19, 2008. However, the Washington Supreme Court justice issued a stay of execution to allow the defense time to file more appeals. In 2013, his attorneys filed a habeas corpus petition in federal court claiming that Yates was mentally ill and not responsible for the murders. The same year, his execution became even less likely when Governor Jay Inslee announced that no death warrants would ever be signed while he is in office. In summary, since I feel like I just threw a bunch of information at you, he was convicted in 15 murders, though suspected in at least 23. There are several different ways he was officially connected to victims, including his DNA being found with the victims and plants found covering several of the victims' bodies, along with packing styrofoam and chips of broken concrete that matched debris found in Yates' backyard. But there are also other victims found prior to his killing spree between 1996 and 1998 that could likely be linked to Yates that match his pattern. They were known sex workers found with gunshots and several grocery bags over their head. They believe the grocery bags were due to the fact that he always transported his victims in his Corvette and it helped contain the blood. These murders took place in the early 90s and the list of some of the possible victims included over the years include Yolanda Sapp, Nikki Lowe, Sherry Palmer, Shannon Zielinski, Terion Corbett, and Patricia Barnes, 
However, in 2017, a 65-year-old transgender woman named Donna Perry was convicted of killing Yolanda Sapp, Nikki Lowe, and Kathleen Brisbois. And I'm adding that case to my list to cover down the road. According to a 2000 article in the Spokesman Review, the German federal police have also looked into the deaths of 26 sex workers with the assistance of the U.S. Army Criminal Investigation Command. Yates had been stationed as a Navy helicopter pilot in Germany between 1988 and 1991 and owned a black van similar to the one described in the killing spree. After that one article, I cannot find anything else linking him to that series of killings in Germany. The victim's families were given an opportunity to speak to Yates in court after he had agreed to a plea bargain, and I wanted to tell you some of the things they said about their family members. These women were sex workers, and as I have talked about in previous episodes, this label can hinder investigations, and it did in this case as well. In fact, the authorities had to ask the media to stop referring to the serial killer as the prostitute killer because it was hindering the investigation and lowering public interest. So here are a few of the comments made by family members of the victims that show how they saw them, not just as drug addicts or sex workers, but real people who had childhoods and lives and good times as well. Jennifer Joseph's father wore a button with her picture on it and said she loved to play piano, sing, and take pictures. She was only 16 when she was killed. Darla Sue Scott's aunt and mother wore shirts with a picture of her smiling that said, Our Darla Sue, Mommy, Niece, Honey. Sean Johnson was killed just after her son had gotten married. Lori Ann Wason loved her son and Rottweilers and was desperately trying to get off drugs. She had been clean for six years before relapsing in the months before her death. Sunny Oster loved catching garter snakes as a child and taught herself to swim by jumping into the water without knowing how. She took care of her stepmom as a child when she struggled with cancer. At the time of her death, she was on the waiting list for a spot at a drug treatment facility. Her father spoke while holding the small box with Sunny's remains and asked the judge to turn Yates over to the victim's family as a punishment. Melody Murfin's daughter questioned how he could allow his family to walk around her mother's remains for two and a half years like that. Yates' oldest daughter then approached clutching a Bible and addressed the victim's families and asked her father how he could do such things and let him know that his son was now afraid of him. Then Robert Lee Yates Sr. spoke, apologizing for his son's actions to the victim's family and the Spokane community. Several members of the victim's families hugged both Sonia and Robert Lee Yates Sr. afterwards. When Robert Lee Yates Jr. addressed the court, he was met with jeers as he stated he had turned to God to overcome his shame and guilt. After the heinous crimes of Yates were brought to light, a part of Yates' family history was revealed by the media. In 1945, his paternal grandmother was accused of killing his grandfather with an axe in Tennessee. Novella Johnson Yates woke up early on an October morning and walked across the frosty yard barefoot to retrieve an axe from the woodshed and attacked her sleeping husband, John Taylor Yates, with four blows to the head. He was later brought to the hospital where he died six days later. John Lee Yates Sr. was a child living in the home when this occurred. Novella was sent to a Tennessee mental institution after bludgeoning her husband. She was charged with felonious assault, but no trial records could be found, 
so it's unclear if she was ever convicted in connection to the murder of her husband. Novella Yates was eventually released from the mental institution, but the date that occurred is uncertain. She never remarried and died in 1972 in a small Tennessee town. The Yates were parents to 10 children. And in 2015, the Washington Supreme Court judge rejected another effort made by Yates to overturn his conviction. And unless a new governor takes office and allows for executions, he should be spending the rest of his life in prison. He is currently incarcerated at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, where he worked for a very brief period of time in his 20s. And that is the case of serial killer Robert Lee Yates Jr. Before I get to my wine review, I just wanted to let you all know that I'm going to be releasing episodes every other week for the rest of the summer. As I've said before, I have three young kids and they all play two spring and summer sports. So this is just out of necessity to keep all of my bases covered. Can you guess what one of the sports is that I'm at five days a week? To keep the bases covered with the podcast and my family life, I have made the decision to go every other week because I really want to give each case the attention and research it deserves instead of rushing to meet a deadline. I also plan on covering some bigger cases and those need a lot more time to research. Thanks for understanding and supporting my podcast. It was so cool to ship out merch last week with my logo on it. I definitely shed a happy tear about it. So thank you. And also, if you haven't yet and you listen on Apple Podcasts, please give my show a five-star rating and bonus points for a review. This helps with Apple's algorithm to get on the charts and help others find my show. All right, this week's PNW wine I paired with my true crime is my first Idaho wine. Clearwater Canyon Cellars 2019 Merlot out of Lewis Clark Valley. This delightfully dry Merlot smells of lilac, candy plums, and cranberry combined with nutmeg and anise spices in the glass. Concentrated flavors of roasted hazelnuts, maple syrup, cedar box, and blueberry jam, and finishes with long velvety tannins on the palate. It was a delight. Cheers and thanks for listening. (laughs) 